You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome to episode 353. We're going to talk about the looming war with Iran. Will there be a war? Should there be a war? What are what are the players? Who are the what's going on? We're gonna fill you all in so you don't sound stupid when you're talking to your friends. So uh, Harry's with me. A uh, long time since Harry and I have been alone together, so it could get a little crazy. So stay tuned. This is recorded on June 4th, 2018, or 2019. My goodness. Uh, we'll be right back. Warning. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh... Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. All right. Welcome back to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. This is the flagship show. We are Libertarians. For those of you who are new here, uh, I'm your host, Chris Spangle. Harry is my co-host. Harry Price, how are you? Going good, going good. Uh, Nice to see you. It's been a long time since we've been here. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. A while. And... uh, you know the the first few minutes here, we just get to talking about whatever, and then we uh, I I'm now doing chapters. So if you're not going to the website and checking out our show notes, show chapters. If your podcatcher doesn't do chapters, um, when available, I add in chapters now. So if you don't like the chit chat, you can just skip right ahead to the pertinent information. Uh, then I, I try to chapter it out as best as I can and make sure that uh, we're not wasting your time. If you're not a a fan of the program and you just want the information, then you can just skip right to it. I'm trying to make it easy on people to, to consume us. I know these are long episodes, but when you're trying to give basically an explainer, a definitive guide to a lot of these big issues every week, you, you have a lot of information that you, I, I like to be complete in yeah. what I'm giving out. Well, sometimes you like, you're on the, you know, you're in your car, you're going to drive to the pub and you know this is going to come up in conversation, so you yeah. want to skip, like, I've got to get the best information I can get to, and i got to get to it now. Right. But then, some days, you may, you know what, I want to listen to the podcast, I'm going to be stuck in traffic by myself, I need someone to hang out with. That's right. And that's what we're here for. Uh, it is a collection of about 40 people across the board. Um, my, I'm just checking the, the Patreon. Things are not looking good. Um, so... We're, we're trying to bring you good information. You people are canceling Patreon. How dare you? Um, so please, listen, here's the deal. We have about 40 people involved, a bunch of different shows. We're a network. We have a lot of expenses. I, I pay with the Patreon all the costs, so we're about to bring on a new show soon, and uh, we're, we cover the costs. Like Some networks, they will charge people for the access to technology in the platform. I don't do that. So I, I say, hey, if you want to p- contribute your time, then you're going to get a platform. And somebody like Hody, for instance, mm-hmm. who does the dailies, is getting 4,000 people listening to his voice. He used to do a podcast, and I'm, 
I'm going to be generous and say it was a few hundred. May have listened to that former podcast. It may have been less. You know, and so uh, we pay the bills and we give them a voice and we bring on a lot of interesting people. And and if you like our content, then please support our Patreon. Um, we support we thank everyone who does support our Patreon. It is uh, vitally important that you support independent media in this time of increased censorship. And there are some very special people that uh, consistently donate to the program. First and foremost, the Libertarian Coalition. Look them up on Facebook. They're great guys. Ed Brehob, our former intern, Jason Doolittle, Craig DaCosta, and of course, the lovely Christy Avery. Um, so we really do appreciate everybody that contributes to the show, uh, both in uh, and on Patreon and in terms of content. So um, that's kind of a little bit about We Are Libertarians. Sometimes I like to give these little refreshers about who we are, what we do. The dailies are 20-minute, 30-minute little shows in between the big show. Uh, that just kind of cover briefly some topics and a lot of topics that you probably won't hear anywhere else. And check out the Boss Hoggle Liberty, Brian Nichols Show, Tad Talk, some of the other shows. So so that's who we are and that's what we do and that's uh, kind of what we're about. But let's get to the important stuff. Harry, what is Killdozer Day? <laughs> <laughs> Happy Killdozer uh, well, it Would it be Happy Killdozer Day or Killdozer Memorial Day? Uh-huh. For all of you those don't know, or probably have never heard of this "quote unquote" morbid kind of a day that has happened, is basically I don't know which, I can remember the guy's name is like is it Manuel Mallory or something like that? Uh, I can't remember the guy's name right now off the top of my head. But Killdozer Day is gives a story about a, a man who is fed up with the, uh, local government. This is why local governments and local elections mean something because they can actually affect you in your business. Mm-hmm. Well, the that the man had a business. The business was this is like a short like like the, uh, the you know. Too long did not read section. Okay. He had a business, a junkyard. The The local government wanted him gone. They would sell different parts of it to his cronies, give, make sure he doesn't have his license. They would do construction practice, blocking him stuff in, basically so he couldn't compete and get business, right? right. F- uh, fed up, he decided to, you know, instead of just, you know, he tried to fight City Hall the other way, and, and when he finally got done to his end of his rope, he decided to actually fight City Hall with the only thing that he knew how to do after trying to do everything else with he hit the end of his rope, which was violence. So he took a bulldozer, covered the sucker in concrete, uh, so he, basically a bulletproof shell and basically a tank, put himself inside, Dropped the last bit on there, so he basically encapsulated inside. He couldn't, you know, you can't get into him. He couldn't leave and decided to drive this bulldozer and bulldoze the town going after the people in political power that went after him. So crushing their cars, going, destroying their businesses, going through the police and went on this massive chase. And since it was a bulldozer covered in concrete, there's nothing you can really do. It's small arm fire, rifles. Most things aren't going to go through this freaking concrete. Right. Eventually, the uh, bulldozer did get stuck, uh, overheating, and got stuck on something, and then the rest of the guy did take his own life. But it was just like, but this day is always marked for everyone because the guy tried to run his business, tried his business legitimately, and other people who he did not know at the time decided that he was unwanted, what he wanted, and they wanted to use the force of the government to get rid of him and his business. Right. And he had to do, use the only way he knew how to protect his freedom. Mm. Yeah. 
rolling them over with a giant <laughs> bulldozer. <laughs> Did, was anybody hurt other than him? If I remember correctly, no. Yeah, it was the he was the only one that was um, like killed. There was a lot of people like hurt from scratching dents, but like the only person killed was him. So he just kind of went nuts. And- not nuts. Not nuts. You're talking about like your entire livelihood has been taken from you. I don't know, man. That's a that's a snapping of, you know, where you just kind of. I get it, but I also don't think that I would get to the point where I'd start like I'd have that level of property destruction in me. But not everybody has my level of gentility, I guess. Yeah. Oh, right. uh, yeah. His name is Marvin John He Meyer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Marvin Meyer. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Yep. And he had a. It was a muffler shop. Sorry. Took me a while to look it up. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. And this, and the thing is, this is what governments, you know, like, like to do sometimes, especially they don't like different things, you know? Right. It, and it's kind of, some of this stuff has happened with the Red Line Project here in Indianapolis. There's yeah. tons of different businesses that, that lost the front doors of their business because of the whitening of the street to allow the Red Line Project. The Red Line Project inside of Indianapolis is an idea, is an archaic idea that we, millennials and or people in general or a city needs mass transportation. It's not. We, we. We, we're, we're we solve the, the issue of that. It's called cars. We're the twelfth largest city, and we are in a place where it's very flat. I mean, this is a city that grew in the sixties, seventies, eighties. So you don't have a lot of the ethnic neighborhoods, a lot of closed off neighborhoods. You have a very flat and open city, uh, and it's very wide. And so, by the time people were moving out to the suburbs, that's when Indy started to develop. And uh, they've made a concerted effort. I'm working on a project right now called Leaders and Legends. Check out that podcast, please, about how Indianapolis got to a place like Indiano Place to the 12th largest city where people have a lot of conventions. You may have been here for a convention. Mm-hmm. Um, surprise, government money. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to kind of hear the, the elite side of things for, for once, unedited. Um, but I... Um, I, I look at the idea that these major cities like Indianapolis, who are not New York, who are not Austin, who are not San Francisco, kind of these major top tier hubs, kind of in that second level, they they have this idea that millennials and tech jobs are going to come to their city if they have mass transit. Right. And that's not true. Like what millennials really want is good restaurants, mm-hmm. low taxes, a city that doesn't mess with their personal life. And one of those murals, like in Nashville, where they can take a friend, they can take a photo and post it for their friends on Instagram. Right. They need the, the angel wing, wings. Yeah, right. they need the wing mural. They need some sort of mural in front of it. The yeah, the idea that they want mass transit is ridiculous. They make pine for it in San Francisco and stuff like that, and talk about it. But it's because that town is so expensive, they can't afford a car. Nobody wants to ride the Bart. They that's yeah. a, th- millennials are so vain. They don't want to be seen on the bus. I saw one turd on the bar and I turned around and got a rental car. I was like, nope, right, nope, right, nope, nope, not doing this. You think Harry's delicate hands are ever going to touch a, a bus? No, oh, it was, yeah, it was gross. It's like, nope, get up, nope. Yeah, those bird scooters here in Indianapolis mm-hmm. are really enough. Right, right. The blue, like the, everyone kept wondering, like, where the heck are we going to park all these scooters? Like, remove the blue cars. Right. Remove those. Get rid of those things that nobody uses. Yeah. These rental cars that you rent for an hour like mm-hmm. like you would like a, a, a boat at a dock. The only people I ever see using them are for people who are visiting from California and New York because of that. Oh, that's cheap. That is cheap. <laughs> are you serious? Like you could rent a whole car for the whole day for $30 here at Enterprise. What the heck would I want that for an hour for the same price? Yeah. So a lot of, a long, a lot of wrongheaded ideas and local governments do a lot to really 
screw people over. And so, Mr. Killdozer, we celebrate you. Yeah. Because there's a lot of different things for like public transportation. Like, we, we saw most of the public transportation, just the idea, the idea Uber. Right. The thing is, if companies or just people in general just go like, wait a minute. I don't want to pay all this money to jump in a car with a stranger who's going to the same place. What if I just share the pool with the people who live in the exact same area that work in the exact same company? Right. Ta-da. You know, you've got your Uber pool, but it's not an Uber pool. It's people you work with. Yeah. You know, so. All right. Well, let's, let's get started on Iran. Uh, I want to start because I want you to, I want to put you in a certain frame of mind uh, as we talk about issues of, of non-interventionism and anti-war. I think, the the conversation around war is a lot like the conversation around police it's it's wrapped in a lot of nationalism and a lot of language that is um you know intended to get you to support certain things that if you had it explained to you as you will have explained to you in this podcast uh, you, you might not support it and so i i always like to go back and look at history and try to understand the lessons of history and apply them on this show i i you know, a lot of libertarian podcasts talk a lot about economics. Um, I tend to fall more into talking about sociology and uh, history than I do than I do economics. I'm not a math person. I don't have that kind of brain, but I do have a, a brain geared towards people in history. And so I go with my strengths instead of trying to fill in my weaknesses because uh, I'm not Tom Woods or Robert Murphy. They are much better at that kind of stuff. So I'm filling that gap. But uh, I'm reading this book. Um, I was at the pool. Uh, shout out to Jeremiah for hosting a great pool party this past week. You did not attend. That is correct. Uh, it was a mandatory pool party. So is there any public apologies you'd like to make to me right now? Um, I deeply and humbly apologize that I was not there. Thank you. You were missed. You were missed. We were very upset you weren't there. Um, they were smoking lots of cigars without you. Were they? They were, yeah. Lots of cigar smoking. Tad had just come from Vegas where he nearly died, and I'm not kidding. Tad, of course, goes to Vegas and about kicks the bucket. But um, So I I was at the pool, and I was reading a book that that I had had recommended to me, and it's called The Language of the Third Reich by Victor Klemperer, and uh, it's on the Bloomsbury Revelations um, uh, mark. It's it's weirdly categorized as fashion on the back, um, mm. but mm. Uh, you know, I know everybody goes to the what Nazi well a lot, and uh, that's not what I'm not. I'm not trying to compare our government or Iran or anybody to the Nazis. But I thought the beginning of this book was really interesting, and and I thought as I kind of read this. As we as we work through our show tonight and talk about Iran, I wanted to kind of keep this lesson uh, fresh in your mind as you learn probably about a lot of stuff regarding America and Iran for the first time. And uh, there's there's a lot of propaganda on both sides about how both sides are acting. And uh, I was watching some prep stuff on YouTube beforehand, and the person I was with went, "What?" how have I never heard about any of this? And I said, it's because you're not taught this stuff in schools. You're not talk about, taught about Project Ajax and how mm-hmm. we overthrew the Iranian government. And this is not a bash America segment because Iran is involved in a lot of very bad stuff too. But these are just the facts, you know, stripped of a lot of its uh, propaganda tonight. And this book 
the introduction talks a lot about heroism. And the this guy was a a professional he was a basically a professor of language and symbology and he wrote this book talking about how the Nazis evolved language over the 20 years that they were around and how they used languages and symbols and and other aspects of communication to really warp and bend German society. I mean, a society that was uh, an an industrial power, it was cosmopolitan, Mm -hmm. it was cutting edge in a lot of ways, it was comparable to America today, Mm -hmm. and language was used to pervert the minds and hearts of the German people to allow Hitler to do whatever Hitler wanted to do. And in a lot of ways, I see parallels throughout all of history and happening today in the way that language is used, ideas uh, are used to, I, I just think like I got in, I, I had a weird thing at work right before I left and the, the older boomer man who's a conservative got into an argument with the younger female liberal who's liberal about gay, about pride month <sighs> And it's just everybody's yelling cliches at each other and nobody's actually kind of stopping and thinking about why do I think about why is Pride Month pushed so hard to the point that it's cliche. Like it's now cliche for a company to change their logo to the pride flag. Well, that means that full adoption, full acceptance in society lends it to being cliche essentially. Uh, and so the the days of going to a pride festival 15 years ago or 10 years ago, like I did when it was countercultural, it's not countercultural anymore. It's now right. cultural right? because society in 15 years has transformed around this one issue through a variety of different means, least of them government specifically, I think queer eye for the straight guy, will and grace and just people feeling more comfortable at ta- talking about their personal stories with friends and family. Um, but you've seen now the language has evolved. It's it's a movement. Of, it's a movement about acceptance, and I think in the next five years the movement will be: you don't accept this. Well, then there's problems, and we're already kind of getting there. And I think, uh, I think, uh, and I'll talk more about this on a different show. But I think we're kind of setting up two distinct cultures. We're heading into a new epoch in America where we have two distinct cultures wrapped around two secular religions. It's the Fox News patriotic crowd, conservative-leaning, you know, uh, just believes in a lot of the, the the myths, sort of the older religion. And then you have the, the liberal left social justice religion, and of which, pill, you know, one pillar is pride. And if, if you're not fully openly embracing that one thing, then you're a heretic and we must destroy you and we must go after you. I think I think that's kind of where we're heading in America. We're, we're setting up two distinct cultures and we're, we're the, the wars that people had in politics have now infected every area of the civil life and it's becoming a real issue. Correct. Like battlegrounds and everything, the lines are being drawn in the sand right. of the Amazon people versus the. I people too as well yeah there's, yeah yeah it's yeah it's ridiculous and also considering that typhoid and the black black death is going to show its ugly head in California yeah it's going to get dark ages yeah two cultures here it's going to get crazy in a bit right and so he begins the book the the introduction of this book talking and this was written like 1946 <laughs> it's oh. by oh. uh Klemperer, a German. I think, uh, who 
He was a frontline veteran of the First World War, became a professor of French literature at Dresden, Germany. Uh, he was taken from his university in 35 because he was Jewish and only survived because of his marriage to an Aryan. And the uh, dedication to his wife is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read in a book. Um, so he he begins by talking about a new change in um, the German language. D start de started to be added to a lot of different words de-emphasized uh decluttered um you know removing blackouts basically there's some language uh you know de-bittering certain forms of nourishment Uh, and so the germans used the d x d example a lot because they were trying to change the traditional values of most Germans and saying, well, this is a bad way to do things. And so we must change it and do something different. And so they, they would change it a lot of ways. Um, they obviously focused on education and, um, the younger generations. And he talks a lot about how many of the different words kind of have only a meaning in that specific time. And, uh, hopefully they never really, kind of continue but in the in the years after the war there were a lot of germans who still kind of held to a lot of ideology that was propagated by the nazis and he explains why um and this too will be the fate of the most serious and decisive words in our own epoch of transition one day the word einsatzenführig will have faded away because the situation it was intended to end will no longer exist meaning the denazification is what the that word that i mangled means but that won't be so he's saying we countered it with denazification in germany but that won't be for some time yet because it isn't only nazi actions that have to vanish but also the nazi cast of mind the typical way of thinking and its breeding ground, the language of Nazism. What a huge number of concepts and feelings it has corrupted and poisoned. At the so-called evening grammar schools organized by the Dresden Adult Education Center and in the discussions organized by the Kulturbund, the Cultural Association, or the Free German Youth, I have observed again and again how the young people, in all innocence and despite a sincere effort to fill the gaps and eliminate the errors in their neglected education, cling to Nazi thought processes. They don't realize they were doing it. The remnants of linguistic usage from the preceding epoch confuse and seduce them. We spoke about the meaning of culture, of humanitarianism, of democracy, and I had the impression that they were beginning to see the light and the certain things that were being straightened out in their willing minds. And then, it was always just around the corner, Someone spoke of some heroic behavior or other or some of heroic resistance or simply of hero heroism per se. As soon as this concept was even touched upon, everything became blurred and we were adrift again once in the fog of Nazism. And he goes on to talk about how it wasn't just the men and women, but the idea of heroism in war had been so bred into culture over the 20 years of the rise of the Nazis and so propagandized by the culture that just the mere mention of a heroic act would begin to get them into a state that would um, stir up those old feelings, no matter how willing they were to change because of the gaps in their education and, and because of the lack of knowledge that they had had, they were, they would just completely fall into that. Now, 
I, I'm going to say something controversial. I was at the Uh-oh. I was at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Indy 500. Okay, still good. And uh, it's it's the day before Memorial Day, and there is a lot of celebration of the troops at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for Memorial Day. A lot of honoring, mm-hmm. and the idea of a dual religion popped up when the Archbishop of Indianapolis gave the ceremonial prayer before the race, and. God bless America at the end got a larger cheer than God ever did. People cheer through the whole. There's half a million people around the speedway, 300,000 inside. Mm-hmm. It's the largest single sporting day of largest single sporting event in America. And uh, I just thought God bless America got a bigger cheer in a crowd of fairly conservative Hoosiers in a red state than any other religious notion. Wow. Okay. And then the flyover happens and everybody just feels very patriotic. And I thought, you know, I've been thinking about the left setting up their own religion, but the right is too. And it's wrapped in red, white, and blue. And uh, I I tried to speed that up so I didn't rhyme, so I didn't sound stupid. But um, I think when when we look at war, we have to stop thinking about the language that we use and if you oppose war then you don't support soldiers which is not true i can tell you that the largest group of likes on our facebook page out of ninety four thousand people the largest groups that follow our page are veterans uh the show notes prepared tonight were prepared by someone who is in the in the military as we speak i'm not giving their name obviously um people who are in the military deeply care about non-interventionist principles and understanding the costs of good and bad policy when it comes to defense. And they desperately want you to understand that their lives are important too. They're not just a point of pride that you throw at an enemy and then honor when they're sent back in a body bag. They're actual real living people. Um, So, I think that's why libertarians tend to get a lot of military support because the most patriotic thing you can do is to fully understand what war is. And war isn't... So many times on that day, as they were honoring veterans or honoring Memorial Day the next day, I just saw people talking about, thank you for dying for my freedom or thank you for defending my freedom. And... I want to challenge that concept because I don't think that when people go over to fight for our freedom, I think that when young men and women sign up for the military, they have every intention of fighting for our freedom. But when they are deployed, they start to realize they're fighting for a bureaucracy and they're fighting to keep multinational corporations that sell sell arms in business. And the men and women who are deployed in Yemen in Syria, start to see the amount of weaponry that is is bought by the military-industrial complex in this nation, and they go, am I fighting for freedom and my fellow Americans? I don't think so. So I'm now fighting for the guy next to me. Uh, and you see that in, in – there's a great Netflix series that I, I binged this past weekend called Medal of Honor. Uh, that's the title of it, and it's about Medal of Honor winners. Their stories individually – and, and throughout, it's not over, uh, over the top on patriotism. 
it's mainly a tribute to the men that they're fighting with and how the band of brothers that they were involved when kept each other going. And very little of it had to do with your freedom, my freedom, or the freedom of the United States. It had everything to do with them getting out alive (laughs) because they were put in very bad situations. So I I would invite you to check that out. Um, And so... What are when we talk about starting a war? What are we really talking about? We're talking about billions of dollars, um, hundreds of thousands of lives, and for what result? Uh, I I was an absolute warmonger. I was very eager for the United States to go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq in two thousand and three. I uh, could not stand the idea of Fahrenheit 9-11, although as college Republican president in 2004, I showed both Fahrenheit 9-11 and uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 by Dick Norris um, in the interest of fairness. But I, I, f- I look at my support of that particular war, and with hindsight, I can now see why we didn't win that war. <laughs> Despite all our planning, despite all of our thought that went into that, despite all of our public support, 70% uh, wanted America to go to war before, uh, despite all the coalitions of the willing, despite everything, we went into Iraq and we lost. We got our butts kicked repeatedly. And it is because we were exporting the vague notion of freedom and they were trying to, uh, the people that were, essentially what happened in Iraq is we went into Iraq, we destabilized even further an unstable situation. Uh, we didn't fully appreciate that there is a cold war currently happening in, in happening in the Middle East between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and Iraq has always been the buffer. And when we removed the buffer, uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran basically moved in, armed militias, and they were not only killing each other, they were killing our soldiers and they were killing the villagers caught in between. Iraq in the very first place, if you go back to its history, it's, it's a- after the fall of the Ottoman Empire in World War I, was a band of tribes who just ended up uh, being crammed, three distinct tribes, being crammed into a single nation in something called Sykes-Picot. And so it wasn't even drawn with any forethought or the creation of a nation that might be stable. And so it's always been unstable. And that's probably partly what the people in charge want. <laughs> um, and I think that there is no country that better exemplifies America's less than stellar intentions than Iran. Starting with 1951. Um, so... I'm actually going to, I mean, let me actually talk to Harry so we can hear his voice. And so I'm not monologuing the whole time. I mean, Harry, when you hear me say something like, um, I, I don't, I guess if I were to sum it up, I don't believe that patriotism is necessarily a bad thing, but it does become a bad thing when patriotism is used to justify the killing of other people in the name of profit. Is that a fair thing to say? Is that too controversial? Have I lost the audience? <laughs> I don't think you've lost the audience. I think you're uh, gr- you're kind of like seeing everything with different eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I will say the religion that you described of like the right religion of the religion of the right or the Republican religion, giving it a name, you know, like right. the, the the political party on the, on the right in this country in the United States is called the Republican Party. Right. That was set up by one of the first Republican presidents, Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War. That yeah. religion, that that that's the grand martyr, you know, of the, you know, of that religion. He did all this, then died. And then it's and there's all that has stemmed just basically from the uh, Civil War. And it's got really large the, the, during then. So everyone's doing all this for the war effort. Then it kind of went down, like kind of went down, got a little suppressed, but now it's back in full force, but they're using the exact same terms, the exact same way that they yeah. used during the civil war to keep that whole religion back up and running. And it's, you know, pumping going. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. At the end of the day, you know, uh, I'm going to allow, you know, like, uh, I wrote a small blog post. I didn't like post it anywhere. I should have, but it was like, what does Memorial day mean to an anarchist in mm-hmm. this country? It's like, you know, like to me, like my freedoms are my own, but I do understand that these people, uh, who may have died for like other tissue, but they still died. Yeah. You just give these people their space so they can honor their dead. I think tomorrow this will be posted on June 5th, the day before the anniversary of D day. I think mm-hmm. anybody who watches saving private Ryan or, or, like my grandfather snuck into the military at 16 and joined the Marines to go fight the Japanese after Pearl Harbor and was, was maimed severely on the battlefield at Okinawa. Um, you know, the, the bravery that is shown by these, by these young men who are sent into situations that, uh, I mean, listen to Dan Carlin's, uh, uh, history of the great war of world war one I. I mean dan carlin's five episode masterpiece on the great war of mm-hmm. these guys who are just thrown into these meat grinders where a hundred thousand die on each side mm-hmm. and you just have a generation obliterated by machine gun fire just because the generals don't consider them people they consider them assets the disposable assets and and i think as a libertarian as a christian uh, as a non-interventionist uh of which i think all three flow together perfectly i really look at um uh, violence as something to be used very sparingly and usually in self-defense and uh, when you look at the and as an individualist as a person who believes in individual rights like to have the government conscript these men in world war one or world war two and and um just destroy their lives mm-hmm for for i mean world war ii was a lot better because a lot of the guys managing world war ii had been in world war one and were on the battlefields for those meat grinders and said i will never do this and so there were a lot less casualties in world war ii despite it was me being a much um, i think there were a lot less It was a much bigger war much larger scale but correct and the weaponry was different yeah uh, we were talking about when uh, they would launch uh, chemical weapons and like mustard gas onto the field and just kill trenches of people yeah yeah i don't and then it's also when old world technology met new world technology at that time of war one, the British empire still came out there with the same type of firing lines. Mm-hmm. So I think the first, um, the first step is to kind of allow yourself to think differently about things. I think that being a libertarian and being a non-interventionist, Harry, you nailed it. We don't have to be anti-soldier. We don't have to be hateful towards people mm-hmm. that have served, in fact, I honor people that made that choice, who served, who, who I think a lot of those guys feel duped once they get in. 
and Welcome a lot of them it. feel like I wish I had known better before I actually went to the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of, and then a lot of them will get out and talk about how like they did, they did feel tricked. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot, of, but then again, there's some of the like that went into it. They a lot of them was like, nope, I like what I know what I did. I do this, and I believe this, and it's like you know what, cool. You went over there, right. you did your thing. Okay, yeah. Patriotism tends to make people think that everything that their so their side has done is is right. Um, but in the uh, in the case of Iran, there's a long, complicated history between America and Iran. And when I first learned about this, I didn't learn about it in school. I learned about it on YouTube. First of all. <laughs> Um, you know, you, and you can't find that video today when I typed in war with Iran as I was, you know, I'll, I'll read the prep, I'll read stuff and then I'll go to YouTube and just kind of like, I'm going to watch some videos while I'm eating dinner, getting ready for this. And now when you type in anything newsworthy war with Iran, all you get is CBC, ABC, BBC, uh, all the B, all the C's. Uh, so you don't get the kind of, um, you know, unique content that you used to get when you're talking about current events, sadly. Um, mm. But that's true. Well, the other thing is like, you know, just said a lot of the now older libertarians or people in the, you know, in this space, uh, they learned a lot of this just because Ron Paul will say something and it was like, what? Right. <laughs> and then you go look it up. You read Chalmers Johnson, you read blowback, you mm-hmm. go, Whoa, Oliver Whoa. Stone. <laughs> you're like, when Wait you, a minute. I don't remember that. <laughs> when you watch Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States on Netflix, mm-hmm. who basically does a Howard Zinn type treatment of American politics, which all of it's true. It's just two things can be true at once. The, mm-hmm. the version you learned in your textbook and the version that was put in Howard Zinn's book, for instance, or anything Noam Chomsky writes, mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the two things can be two versions of the same history. Right. Right. All true. And All happened. you go, oh, the Cold War didn't have to happen. Harry Truman made it happen, and it was to benefit the military. They, like, you had all these people, all these weapons manufacturers, parts manufacturers, all these manufacturing jobs that were built up for the war effort, mm-hmm. and they didn't want those jobs to go away. So now what do we do with it? We better come up with some program, a.k.a. the Cold War, to sell weaponry. Because they are freaking out because they just got out of the Great Depression. Right. And the last thing they want is jobs to go down. Right. And so, obviously, communism was a totalitarian nightmare. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the idea of American being a good Christian nation was a lot of it was manufactured in the 50s uh, to continue the sale of weapons so we could fight the domino theory and things like that. So... Uh, and that plays into Iran. The and so I'm going to read from history.com um, on this day, August 19th, 1953. CIA assisted coup overthrows government of Iran. You read, you heard that right. <laughs> See, you you may be hearing that the CIA, your government, overthrew the government in Iran. And I want you to, to this is from Got the, involved in their elections. You mean, right? The, there was, there was interference. Like yeah, the collusion? collusion. There was collusion between the Shah of Iran and, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, yeah. So the whole Russian narrative, that's why I always laugh. It's like, you think this is new. Yeah, come on. Like the media is selling you a bill of goods. If you think that the, the Russians interfering in our elections with some mm-hmm. f- shitty ads, 
and fake news. I heard some stat. I think I think Rob on on the swamp on one of our recent episodes. Seventy five percent of the news on the internet's fake. I'm like, where did I should have challenged him on it? But um, yeah, seventy five percent of all statistics you hear are fake too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. Um, so here's what happened, and I'm going for our patrons to do a longer episode on this. Okay. So it'll be a bonus episode for patrons. We're not going to do it tonight. I'm going to do it alone. So that way I'm not wasting Harry's time monologuing. Uh, but I really want to dive into what happened in Iran and why. Um, and I found some really interesting uh, articles on it. And so for our patrons, I'm going to do some bonus content here in the next week or so around the coup in Iran. But for our listeners, I want to give you the full context. We told you about Sykes Peacott and how after world war one, the great powers, the British, the French, uh, the Russians, they all carved up parts of the Ottoman Empire that they wanted. The British got Syria, for instance. Uh, I think Iran stayed fairly independent. They were the Persian Empire. That's why you have the Shah of Iran in this, in this next piece of information. Um, you have, in 1951, a guy named Mossadegh. Now, the Iranian military, with the support and financial assistance of the United States government, overthrows the government of Premier Mohammad Mossadegh and reinstates the Shah of Iran in, 19, uh, in 1953. Uh, Iran remained a solid Cold War ally of the United States until a revolution ended in the Shah's rule of 1979. Mossadegh came to prominence in Iran in 1951 when he was appointed Premier. A fierce nationalist, Mossadegh immediately began attacks on British oil companies operating in his country calling for an expropriation and nationalization of the oil fields this is a lot like what chavez did which if you remember chavez in venezuela was the enemy of the state persona non grata axis of evil Mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. bush administration uh and so uh now obviously his ideas spun out of control and we have the venezuela of today but he was largely vilified because he nationalized uh, out of the hands of Western businesses, uh, the what he felt were the, was the property mm-hmm. of the state of Venezuela. Correct. But so a fierce nationalist, Mossadegh, immediately began attacks on British oil companies operating in his country, calling for an expo- expropriation and nationalization of the oil fields. His actions brought him into conflict with the pro-Western elites of Iran and the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Now, we all know I can't say names, so I apologize to the Shah of Iran, wherever he may be now. Um, indeed, the Shah dismissed Mossadegh in mid-1952, but he, so he fired him. But a massive public riot condemning the action forced the Shah to reinstate Mossadegh a short time later. U.S. officials watched events in Iran with growing suspicion. British intelligence sources working with the American Central Intelligence Agency came to the conclusion that Mossadegh had communist leanings and would move Iran into the Soviet orbit if allowed to stay in power. Working with the Shah, uh, the CIA and British intelligence began to engineer a plot to overthrow Mossadegh. The Iran premier, the Iranian premier, however, got wind of the plan and called his supporters to take to the streets in protest. At this point, the Shah left the country for medical reasons, quote-unquote. While British intelligence backed away from the debacle, the CIA continued its covert operations in Iran. Working with pro-Shah forces and, most importantly, the Iranian military, the CIA cajoled, threatened, and bribed its way into influence and helped organize another coup attempt against Mossadegh. 
On August 19, 1953, the military, backed by street protests, organized and financed by the CIA, overthrew Mossadegh. The Shah quickly returned to take power and, as thanks for the American help, signed over 40% of Iran's oil fields to U.S. companies. Mozadik was arrested, served three years in prison, and died under house arrest in 67. The Shah became one of America's most trusted Cold War allies, and U.S. economic and military aid poured into Iran during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In 1978, however, anti-Shah and anti-American protests broke out in Iran, and the Shah was toppled from power in 79. Angry militants seized the U.S. embassy and held the American staff hostage until January 1981. Nationalism, not communism, proved to be the most serious threat to U.S. power in Iran. Uh, They actually worked with the Communist Party. The CIA worked with the Communist Party in Iran uh, and gave them aid and comfort to help them grow their their communist leanings. And so the – I've got to find this article by James Risen. James Risen, we've talked about in the past, uh, great journalist, formerly of the New York Times – and uh, he wrote in 2000, he uncovered basically this whole CIA plot that took place. Uh, and it's kind of archived in this horrible looking site. But basically, the document shows that, that he discovered uh, that I'll talk more about in that bonus special about Iran. The document shows Britain, fearful of Iran's plans to nationalize its oil industry, came up with the idea for the coup in 1952 and pressed the U.S. to mount a joint operation and remove the prime minister. The CIA and SIS, the British Intelligence Service, handpicked General Fazalala Zahedi to succeed Prime Minister Mohammad Mogadish uh, and covertly funded $5 million into the general's regime two days after the coup prevailed. Iranians working for the CIA, posing as communists, harassed religious leaders and staged the bombing of one of the clerics' homes in a campaign to turn the, turn the country's Islamic religious community against Mogadish's government. Okay, so let me repeat that in case you didn't hear it. So in effort to fight the communists and keep them from power in a... So this is what the American public has been told forever until James Risen uncovers this in 2000. We had to fight the communists, so we had to install the Shah to fight the communists. But mm-hmm. here's how we did it. Iranians working for the CIA and posing as communists harassed religious leaders and staged false flag the bombing of one of clerics' homes in a campaign to turn the country's Islamic religious community against Mogadish's government. Mm. The Shah's cowardice nearly killed the CIA operation. Fearful of risking his throne, the Shah repeatedly refused to sign CIA written royal decrees. I'm sorry, boring myself. Uh, the agency arranged for the Shah's twin sister, Princess Ashraf Palevi, and General H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the Faja of the Desert Storm commander, to act as intermediaries to try to keep him from wilting under pressure. He still fled the country before the coup succeeded. So the CIA was staging false flags as a as communist. I mean, the, the Dulles brothers shocked in the 50s and 60s, the Dulles brothers that ran the CIA were absolute trash human beings. Um, the, the most conspiratorial that I get in general is that they orchestrated, uh, he wanted to close down the CIA after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where they almost caused nuclear war. 
Uh, Oopsie. Oops. <laughs> uh, the And I think they probably had him killed, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, for the greater good, for uh, everyone, um, in a blacklist scandal type plot. Uh, so this was used as the template in places like Guatemala, mm -hmm. uh, in Cuba, and in several other places. And the American government and the yeah. CIA specifically have a long history of, uh, of propping up nationalist dictators or a Pinochet type to mm -hmm. keep the communist out. But really what you get on the ground is pick your misery. And, and you'll kind of hear that as we move into the next phase of the show where we start talking about what's happening now. Mm -hmm. But what you hear through history and through the current choices for the people who live in Iran, the people who are just trying to raise children and send them, get them, get their lives and their children's lives uh, to the best economic situation possible. They're really just caught between two really bad choices. And we are usually one of those really bad choices. And so the idea that we are exporting democracy, this is what democracy looks like when the United States government comes a-knocking. And so when you hear the memes or you see the memes about, uh, oh, there's oil here and an eagle starts knocking on the door, that's kind of, this is where it comes from. Yeah. Um, and you'll hear that as we talk about our alliance with Saudi Arabia versus Iran in the next segment. What, what you see is oil plays a really key role in all of this. Well, we, what we have to do is export uh, America, uh, the socialism flaws that happen inside of the United States. So we export them by right. toppling things that could probably rival us, which would unstabilize us. So right. We just export it so they can't. The, but it's, it's the MO of like a lot of the government. Like these are like blueprints of what, you know, what the government has gone through, like like you said, like have they this is encountered in South America, you know, like these are the exact same blueprint. That's why when all these happened, the conspiracy theory shows, quote unquote, conspiracy theory shows. If you want to call them that, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that as a term, so you understand what that is, is because they look into it deeply. Because these are these types of mo's. Just like someone was trying to uh, just here in the back. Um, was uh, reading a report about how the FBI cut like some domestic terrorists after funding, helping them with bombs and showing them how to make bombs. So they caught the, you know, domestic terror with bombs after the FBI showed them how to make a bomb. Well, that's the Vegas conspiracy is that the, the guy who, you know, Mr. No name, no life, no nothing, mm -hmm. you know, for paddock. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dude, what, whatever his name is. Right. He's, 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 running around in casinos where he can easily launder money mm -hmm. and he's being paid by the United States government to sell weapons to people like ISIS mm -hmm. or drug cartels. And then they track those weapons a la fast and furious style. And ISIS basically came up to buy some weapons mm -hmm. from him or Saudi Arabians were, there was a big conference, Saudi Arabian conference and it was it was a bad gun buy gone bad, and that's why you've not seen a lot of the footage. There's three different stories from the security guard who was first on the scene, and then you've never heard about it. It's not investigated. It's not talked about. Uh, and you you go, well, what what's the deal here? Why why was this guy who you know this doesn't add up? He doesn't seem like one of these mass shooter types who like the Aurora shooter who looks like a freak with his red hair or the mm -hmm. or Dylan roof who has like this bizarre look in his eye. like he just seemed like a loser schlubby type of guy. And then all of a sudden he's just killing 
fifth, you know, what, all these people it, out of right, the window, out of the with, window for no, like with uh, some expensive guns and nice cases. Look at the rents for transportation. Right. And so a lot of it didn't make sense. And then we all, well, don't question that your conspiracy theory. So, um, so, uh, fr- uh, Frederick on our chat, quick, um, a couple points from him live fact check here. He said, Shaw was, uh, the queen was the head of Iran, not the Shaw. Um, his grandfather served in the RAF, the Royal Air Force, in Iran and Oman circa 1950. He didn't like what the British did, and it caused so many problems. Uh, so that's an interesting perspective. A, a, regular, a regular British soldier caught in the middle of this recognized, this is not right. What are mm-hmm. we doing here? So, um, so, I mean, when have you ever heard of this? Like, have you heard this history of Iran? I did, but but it's. I was trying to find the video because you kept talking about like, the YouTube video that yeah. made you think about it. And so I was like, holy crap, that was a YouTube video that made me even like Grimson was a video of uh, it, it was a Ron Paul video talking about blowback, uh, blowback, and as he was talking about it, it would just stop and then do this quick check and then go back to Ron Paul's speech and then stop and then go back to the speech. It was like this. You know, it was like a twenty-minute video on YouTube and blew my freaking mind. And I couldn't even find it down there. Just what's looking for? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking for uh, the video that I saw, and I saw it. I wish I grabbed it. It was on Facebook, actually. Uh, It's nowhere in the search. Again, you Iran World War Three. You pull up Roundtable, which is Turkey Television, uh, British, German, British, CBS, TRT, RT, Mm -hmm. like CBS. You get you don't get you get rt (laughs) but you don't get the thing that the dude made that changed your mind about something correct seven years ago you can't find that anywhere which scott horton really defined the term blowback correctly like blowback is a long-term consequences of these secret policies while the backdraft is when it openly blows up in your right in your face right which a lot of this is a mixture of the two. Right. But a lot of like, the, and these are, and reason why they call like, like a lot of things they, uh, they're called secret, these little secret wars that have happened because one, most of the general public aren't known about this. It's kind of harder to do this now, but even then they're still continuing doing that because right. as we get ready to jump here, you're right. You're right. You're going to jump in the modern era. But even when we talk about that, most people rarely know about the bombs dropping in Yemen. This is another secret war that's going on. Mm-hmm. A little bit of blowback that's going to blow up in our face in about 10 years. Right. That's exactly right. The The seeds of what we're talking about with Iran were planted by the British in 1918, God knows where. <laughs> 1918 <laughs> mm-hmm. all the way up until where we're at today in, in the continuous picking at them. Correct. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different things that the British Empire has screwed up and we're just kind of dealing with it. Like even India is dealing with stuff, lines that were drawn in the sand because of the British Empire. Still dealing with it. Thanks. It'll take me forever to find that video. Um, now, let's move to modern times and talk a little bit about what's going on um, in the modern in modern world here. I've got a video from Channel 4 News in England that I want to play because I think it really highlights, you know, we've been beating up on America a little bit uh, and their history. Um, and we will continue to do that, uh, beat up on our own government. We are... are Just easier. I am proud to live in America. I'm happy to live in America, and I love the people that I'm around. But my government has done a lot of stuff that's made our lives worse and the mm-hmm. lives of a lot of people around the world. So mm-hmm. I am unapologetically criticizing the American government. Um, and 
so but we do do recognize this is the best chance of freedom on this gigantic rock right and iran is certainly not an innocent bystander so this this video is called iran's proxy war in syria explained that's fair that's fair this is from uh two years ago may 19 2017 uh, and it, it kind of, so I want to jump back a couple years because what happened in Syria really highlights what's, what's, it will help you understand the greater context of what's happening in the discussion with Iran right now. So let's take a listen to this video from channel four news. <laughs> It's a man who's looking at photos praying. At his home in Iran, a man is weighing up whether he should go and fight in a foreign conflict, along with friends who are already there. Eventually, he decides to leave his children, bidding goodbye to Iran's mullahs too, who will pay him up to $600 a month to fight in far-off Syria. It's a recruitment advert aired on Iranian state TV last year, but there's no mention of money here. Instead, an appeal to destroy Sunni jihadists, including ISIS, and defend the tomb of Zainab in Damascus, one of Shia Islam's holiest shrines. And so let's go back to the Nazi uh, discussion at the very beginning. The idea, the, the greater calls, the calls to something greater, personal heroism, protect religious icons that are important to the Sunni faith. Get, go and kill other people for something that is greater than yourself, and in it you can obtain glory, personal profit, and you can protect what is sacred to our society. That is persistent in every culture all across time when it comes to war and war-making on other people. Uh, and and it and it exists in today. We'll pay your college loan. We'll pay off your student loans. If you join today, then you will get uh, you you'll get the GI Bill. You'll and I'm not knocking that because there are a lot of people who served and that helped a lot of poor, disadvantaged people who wouldn't have had an opportunity otherwise go to college or to raise their station. But the call to personal glory and to personal gain are something that are universally used. And it's being used in Iran, in a country that has a tough economic situation. They're a rich country compared to their Middle Eastern neighbors, but they still have significant economic problems, mainly because of the sanctions by the United States and the UN on their country. Uh, so I think it's important to highlight the point that the the Iranian state television is highlighting the fact that you can go and fight in Damascus, in Syria, leave Iran, go fight in Syria to protect our religious icons near Israel. Now, this is a group of... Iran has recruited an army of Shia fighters to prop up President Assad and to extend an arc of Shia influence from Tehran all the way to the Mediterranean, which has Washington and its allies rattled. Iran provides arms, financing and training and funnels foreign fighters into Syria. It has also sent members of the Iran Revolutionary Guards to take part in direct combat operations. South of Aleppo in Syria and the master of those operations is about to make a very rare public appearance. He's Qasim Soleimani, 
the commander of Iranian military missions overseas and credited with turning the tide of Syria's war. So here's a guy in Aleppo. Do you know where Aleppo is, Harry? It's Aleppo. Right. It's in Syria. And here's the head of uh, here's the head of a branch of the military in Iran in Aleppo, mm. but they don't they don't send people to fight over no, in no. other areas. He's essentially saying this victory is promised to us because we believe in the correct God. So there's Sunni and Shia. Uh, Iran, I think I said they're Sunni, but they're Shia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is Sunni. And it's it's a the the sh- long story short. When Muhammad died, he had named his best friend the successor, and he was to take over. And then the uh, one of his mistresses, his youngest wife, I think, uh, overheard. I think she was in her teens, by the way. <laughs> overheard this this right hand say something very negative about her so when she never forgot it she never got over it and so when muhammad died she orchestrated the lineage to go to i believe his brother or other members of the family and so that's where the split occurs between sunni and shia and so some countries like uh, and i forget which one i apologize um, I believe that the Sunnis follow the family and the Shias follow the... Uh, maybe you can look that up for me. Uh, but that that's kind of the origin of the split. And so now you have in the Middle East a great Cold War going on and really a hot war between Sunni and Shia nations. The biggest Sunni being Saudi Arabia and the biggest Shia being Iran. And they now fight all these proxy wars in places like Syria, Yemen, and Iraq. And the even Libya to some extent. So let's continue. Bring crowd are Iraqi, Lebanese and Afghan fighters as well as Iranians. So he speaks to them in a mixture of Persian and Arabic, though they are all fighting under the banner of Shia Islam. At first, Soleimani had sent the Assad regime these military advisers from Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So this is 2013, and Iran had sent uh, military advisers a year after the Arab Spring uh, to... Now, military advisers always get you in trouble. And whenever you hear, you know, Vietnam started that way. We sent Mm -hmm. some military advisers to Vietnam with JFK, and then all of a sudden, next thing, I think it was Eisenhower that may have sent them. Uh, and then Kennedy increased them. And then next thing you know, you're in a full-scale war with Vietnam. This covert mission ended in disaster when they were caught in a cornfield by a Syrian rebel ambush. It was too late. All these men were killed. This footage was captured by Syrian rebels who then published it proving that Iran had boots on the ground, though officials in Tehran denied it. So the Revolutionary Guards aren't there. No, we don't have a presence, so they're not in Lebanon and Syria. No, not at all. Hezbollah's very strong tree of defense. Hezbollah was Iran's first proxy force in Syria. Fellow Shia fighters based in Lebanon, but funded and trained by the Iranians diverted by their leader from their lifelong mission to confront Israel to save President Assad instead. 
If we have 5,000 fighters in Syria now, they will become 10,000 in the future. And if the battle with these terrorist heretics needs me and all of Hezbollah to go to Syria, we will go. We will go to Syria. It's the Iranian Rush Limbaugh. In 2014, Channel 4 News was given rare access to the funeral of a Hezbollah fighter killed in Syria. Their losses were mounting in what had turned into a proxy war with Sunni rebels funded by Turkey, the Saudis and other Gulf states. So Syria's president made a plea for more help. If we want the Syrian army to do its best, we need to provide it with everything it needs. Right now, all the equipment is available, thanks to Russia, but we have a shortage of manpower. The Iranians found that manpower sympathetic to the cause. Iraqi, Afghan and even Pakistani fighters, some of them Hezbollah lookalikes. It was cheaper than using Iranian men, there was no public backlash, and it was plausibly deniable too. Though by last year, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, was openly visiting the families of those who had died fighting in Syria. About a thousand dead, according to one official. This religious war now too big to hide. Your children use their lives as shields to prevent the filthy hands of villains from touching the holy shrines. And nowhere was Iran more focused than the battle for Aleppo. This jeep fighting on that front is Iranian-armed and Iranian-built. All right, and then they show a uh, Russian jet fighting. And so what you have to understand about Syria is we just left a war in Syria where we are... Uh, we are fighting the Russians and the Iranians aligned. And then you have the Saudis and the Americans. Uh, and, and the Russians and Iranians were aligned with Assad. And then you had the Syrian rebels fighting Assad. And they were backed by the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. And Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia are all fighting for regional dominance and uh, overflowing into all these other little states trying to control. And so... You are in a battle to sell weapons to all of these governments, to provide all of these guerrillas with weaponry. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Saudi Arabian contract was such a big deal. And it's not just because the first round of tanks and jets and everything else was important. It's the parts. That's a really important part of the equation. We want to sell them parts for the next 25, 30 years instead of the Chinese and the Russians. And so the Chinese, the Russians, and the Americans are all fighting to sell military equipment to this part of the world. And uh, I just have to ask you, do you get why they're upset at us? Why do you? It's not that they hate us for our freedom. More freedoms. Right. They hate you because Boeing bombs Northrop and Grumman keeps dropping in their backyard, killing their aunts and uncles and children and wives. So uh, it, it it is... Uh, pick your poison uh we have picked the poison of saudi arabia because we we get oil from saudi arabia and uh that that is a large part of why we are in this battle is for natural resources 
and why we will continue to be contesting in this part of the world. But you have to understand that it has always been about oil, and it will always be about oil, specifically with this region, uh, and in a lot of South American states, and a lot of African states for things like cobalt, for instance. Uh, so uh, the, the Syrian conflict, we've done several shows, Harry, on the Syrian conflict, on... Uh, the Iran nuclear deal. I know we did an episode on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's, there's some episodes that you can go about. I'll grab those and put those in the show notes too. Yeah. Cause like antiwar.com posted a great article, like write up and showing a video about like what the evidence is coming to about like a bomb that, that dropped that, you know, there's clear evidence like this was an American made bomb from the screws that were left over from it just being obliterated. Like this thing was made in the United States. Yeah. You know, and it, you know, it may have killed like, quote unquote this fighter but it took out 11 kids there's metric bolts <laughs> that's what everybody else uses and then there's american bolts right <laughs> bolts stand out you know, uh, and and it's you know and to them it's not the you know so it's not only like the evil power that we hate it's them you know it's right. you know like granted it's kind of over it's not overplayed it's just more of that showcasing inside of like uh, the first Iron Man movie was like, these are my bombs on both sides. Everyone is using my bombs. Yeah. If you watch the beginning of Iron Man, that's how most of our audience should feel right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why he started to fight for good. Cause he realized, Oh, I'm killing everyone. Everyone. Yes. Everyone. So yeah. it's a good reference, Harry. Yeah. Sorry. Nerd reference. And you know, but it's, you know, it's just one of those things that you pick up on, you know, <laughs> and it's, you know, and, and you're right. And that's another reason why I like, uh, Trump was, and all, a lot of these people are upset with China, you know, reverse engineering United States equipment because they're taking our parts money. Right. That's our parts. Yeah. You know, we, we, we need that money. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need them to buy things. One, we need to supply this other power so they'll freak out. So they have to buy more and more to get, it, you know, the other one that they freaked out and they'll pay more of it because they have to get it through other channels. They'll have to pay more for it. Right. You know, it's and and it's either the one types of because you got to say like these people are fighting in a power and for scarce resources that they believe are scarce, which in, in a, the global trade of way the world is currently set up, there's no need for this, right? Any of this, yeah. So let's let's move on to the current conflict. All right, Harry, are you prepared? Yeah. All right. Uh, so we had to do a lot of context because I think for you to understand the current situation, you have to understand that the situation that's going on now has gone on for a long time. That clip that we just played could have been aired on television last night. So when you see news, the headlines of, um, I saw one video posted on YouTube from a news outlet that said, why are things heating up between America and Iran right now? I'm like, Really? It's been pretty hot since the 50s. Uh, So we are in a perpetual state of conflict with Iran. It's just to what degree. Uh, So let's talk about some of the players that are involved right now. Obviously, Donald Trump, the president, John Bolton is the national security advisor, and and Mike Pompeo is the secretary of state. And uh, Bolton, you know, H.R. McMaster, James Mattis, they, they held those positions beforehand. They were very um, dovish. They were not non-interventionists, but they were much less likely to go to war. Trump himself has a lot of non-interventionist uh, tendencies. Mm. 
and then John Bolton is one of the architects of the Iraq War, and uh, I, you know I shouldn't say that because I don't know that for sure, but he has been around a long time and advocates a lot of policies that he, he was the uh, I remember him as the United Nations ambassador during the uh, the later Bush years, and he's generally very hawkish as is Mike Pompeo in Iran. We have the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini. He's basically the head of the the country, head of the religious life, culture, government, everything. And then you have the president, Hassan Ruthani. Uh, basically, the supreme leader is the religious leader who is appointed to lead the nation by supervising the government, creating policies, and basically acting as the commander-in-chief. He also does a lot of appointing of key officials. The president is an elected official who runs the executive branch of their government. I'm so sorry, Harry. Uh, I'm so tired today. I got up at, at I, I got up at five, <laughs> and I didn't get a nap. Uh, but is is deputy commander in chief, and the president answers to the supreme leader. Uh, these are great notes prepared by, like I said, a member of the military. And his comment as he put these together was, "I might be having to look for my boots soon." This is really scary stuff. Uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia are also players. Both nations appear to be enthusiastic about rising tensions, giving their disdain for Iran and the recent comments on the issue. Uh, General Chris Gika, the top UK general in the American-led OIR, the Operation Inherent Resolve. Uh, General Gika has told reporters that there was no increased threat from Iran-backed uh, forces in Iraq or Syria. OIR is the operational name for the U.S.-led military intervention against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So let's give you a little bit of a timeline that kind of led up to this. Um, May 8, 2018, the U.S. decides to leave the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a.k.a. the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, you can go back a year and basically listen to our episode then explaining everything about that. April 15th of 2019, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iran's military unit, is designated as a foreign terrorist organization by President Trump. This is huge, as it could give the president the authority to go to war with Iran via the 2001 Use of Force Resolution. This would bypass the required congressional approval to go to war. A legal argument would ensue over this. So, you... You used to have to declare war in Congress um, if you wanted to to go take a country to war, but now you just label them a terrorist organization, and the 2001 Act will give the president the power to. There's two militaries in Iran, which we will explain in a little bit. Um, one of them is a terrorist organization. Now, now here's a kind of a fun fact: Tehran labeled U.S. CENTCOM, the Central Command a terrorist organization in response. CENTCOM is the geographic combatant command for the Middle East, basically the U.S. command element that directs what military operations happen in the area of responsibility in the Middle East. Um, May 6th, 2019, uh, just a month ago, U.S. deploys warships and bombers to the Middle East. This was pre-planned before all these shenanigans started, but their deployment was slightly expedited as a show of force. Now, you made a face, Harry. What was that? You're doing this with the strings. What the fuck are you doing? It's because the cat is walking. You may hear her meowing. She's all over me. She's just she's very distracting and annoying. Um, May eighth, President Hassan Ruthani announces Iran. It's called. 
It's called a cliffhanger. <laughs> Antissa. Uh, Iran announces it will continue its nuclear program as if they stopped. Now, on, <laughs> right, on May 12th. Right, like people. I don't want to hear it. I'm sorry. I'll just. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just going to say, like, they're going to stop this. You, all right. You know how hard it is to stop this reaction once you got it started right. or got it up to this point and you want me to shut this thing off? All right. Going to need some ramp down time. Right. You know? <laughs> and then when all the inspectors leave and you're ramping this thing down, someone's telling you, turn that back on. Right. <laughs> Uh, and then there was Israel who dropped all the CD-ROMs. Like, do you remember when Netanyahu did like the presentation uh, from with all the Iran documents? Uh, can, can you talk for a minute, Harry? I need to throw my cat. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I'm trying to do work, Mittens. You have got to stop this. Stop. It, stop. It's actually kind of funny to sit there and watch. But yeah. It- <laughs> stop. Sorry. Come on. Sorry. Get out of here. If you don't watch on YouTube, you really should. <laughs> skip to skip to minute one twenty nine on YouTube and you can watch that. God, what an asshole! She's yeah, such an asshole that cat. That's freaking hilarious. So, <laughs> on May twelfth, four four Sorry. tankers were damaged: two Saudi, one UAE, and one Norway tankers, allegedly by Iran. Um, now, on May thirteenth, the next day, the U.S. issued a warning against travel to Iran. And the day after that, the U.S. says Iran is likely behind attacks on Saudi oil facilities. Uh, General Gika gives an interview with a reporter stating he does not know of an increased threat from Iran. The next day, on May 15th, U.S. pulls non-emergency staff from Iraq. Uh, May 16th, Saudi Arabia accuses Iran of ordering attacks on pipelines. And May 18th, American diplomats warned that commercial airliners are potentially being misidentified in the Persian Gulf. So just a few things that are kind of a rising of the temperature between these two countries over the past month. So not necessarily we're not going to war with them. It's just it, it, it is like I saw David Frum say this and I saw the foreign minister of Iran say this. Essentially what's happening is there's a rising of tensions and mm-hmm. there's a ri- there's a ratcheting up. And David Frum, I thought, gave a really interesting point. She's uh, this interviewer. She says, uh, I think he was on the CBC. She goes, why would you support the Iraq war, but not this war? Uh, And he says, well, you know, there was the coalition of the willing. There was all these uh, UN support. There was uh, a a comprehensive plan. There were generals. There was public support. There Mm -hmm. was all these different ducks in a row. Now imagine, and we see how well Iraq went. Right. And he goes, now imagine a president and uh, a nation, a nation that isn't aware of a war with Iran, that it doesn't support or understand a war with Iran. Uh, no plan. No plan. No public support. No allies. And they want to impeach that president anyways. And do you think that the war is going to go any better? Absolutely not. And uh, so good on David Frum for learning his lesson. Um, but to his point. Uh, it, 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 like, there, there is no real plan. It's just a ratcheting up of, of tension. And David Frum goes, that's a dangerous place to be because, like with World War I, you may not intend to start a war, but you may accidentally set off a chain of events that can't take one back. Right. Or you have some situation where, like, if you l- read the history of World War One, every single one of the heads of state in Europe did not want to have a war. No. 
the military leaders did not want to have a war. No. And that yet, yet somehow they had a war. It just happened. And part of that is public persuasion and part of that is just actions. Mm-hmm. Actions determine the course of history. Ally, then there was ally treaties. Then there was just like some of the countries were embarrassed by certain like right. showings. Uh, and then, it, yeah. It, because well, a lot of the US European powers were barely holding on to anything after going into the 19th century. Yeah. The American capitalist system is just sitting there, just started, you know, it's ratcheting it up and doing all these different things. All these wars that happened over there in Canada, this, you know, it, well, most of the European powers is like, you want me to do what? It's defensive. And so. <laughs> We like just in, lost money. We just got rid of the, this Napoleon, Jack. Right. There, <laughs> there was something what? called the Schlieffen Plan, and basically the Germans had this plan that that if there were ever tensions or a war, they would have 48 hours or something to get this thing going. Mm-hmm. And it, they had to act before Russia moved, because if they moved, because Russia had so many people that if they went to war with Russia and they got bogged down on two fronts, they would be hosed. And then they, they knew that they couldn't, they they had to really deal a blow to the French because the French had such good fighting forces mm-hmm. and, and sort of the remnants of Napoleon. Right. Uh, and, and so... Yeah, that whole, I believe, like, oh, the French, they just, they just right. surrendered. Oh. No, the French <laughs> did not just surrender. But so what you have is this giant hammer that goes through Belgium down into France and then on to Paris. Mm-hmm. And it had to be activated at the right moment and so when some things happened that that were triggered um that made it look like russia might be moving and mm-hmm. made it look like france might be moving the germans got spooked and s- initiated the Schlieffen plan mm-hmm. and then invaded belgium uh and then invaded france and then that's how you end up with a, a, the stalemate that it was correct um but and so in an era where communication was still crap it was right. better than like most but it's still crap but think of the confusion then and the confusion now of so many channels of community so many voices so yeah. much so confusion is often what triggers a lot of this stuff and so we're in dangerous territory but we're not looking at i don't believe that we are going to be rolling 120,000 ground troops into the into uh iraq anytime soon but that that's what's been discussed yeah it's like during the cuban missile crisis they just picked up they, if they could have just picked up the phone and called each other probably world war one probably would not have happened that, that's exactly right i just got this notification from uh, nbc news texas school district fires a teacher who tried to report undocumented students to trump on twitter <laughs> god i guarantee he's a boomer <sighs> um okay so so let's give some context uh from uh, and this is from our official security advisor here on weird libertarians uh, whom i cannot name um from a security standpoint iran is a one is one out of four countries that the u.s focuses on when it comes to their security the other three being china russia and north korea each of the four carry their own different set of security risks. For China, we have a trade war. Russia has a near-peer military. Lastly, North Korea is an emerging nuclear power. So why does Iran garner so much attention? While Iran has been trying to develop nuclear weapons for some time, the main reason it is perceived as a threat is the Iranian Threat Network, or ITN. The ITN is a compilation of non-state actors, terrorist groups, and militias, most notably Hezbollah, Hamas, that are supported by Iran. The ITN is how Iran projects their power and influence in the Middle East as ex- as experienced by most recently in Syria and Yemen. So these are adjacent actors. You'll hear the term adjacent applied to them a lot. Um, so 
you know, May 8th, we leave in 2018, we leave the Iran nuclear deal and Trump campaigned on this and he enacted his plan to leave. Uh, you may have heard about the pallets of cash. Well, a lot of that was repayment for the damage to their economy that sanctions had had done in exchange for them to stop their nuclear plan. Um, we left it, but Iran and several other European nations remained in the deal, and Iran was expecting the European nations involved to basically fill the void by, left by the U.S. as the Iran nuclear deal was originally put in place to rebuild, rebuild Iran's economy after it was degraded due to U.S. sanctions. Uh, and surprisingly, nobody paid them. The Europeans didn't do S. <laughs> they didn't do anything. Oh, because they don't have money. Right. So everybody looks like at us like the rich daddy. It's outrageous. <laughs> but the United States doesn't I have am money. not your sugar daddy, Iran. The United States doesn't have money either. <laughs> right. But, but at least they could throw around cash. Right. The United States have walking around cash. Yeah. We're, we're like, we're a $30,000 millionaire. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that term? <laughs> Basically the guy who, you know, he goes to your LA fitness. He's mm-hmm. got like a, a Rolls Royce and and spiked hair and he goes out to the club every weekend but he's makes thirty thousand dollars he just yeah, he just he, spends it to make himself look richer mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's driving the uh rolls with the uh salvage title but no one knows because this is right <laughs> so smokes let's fast forward to now and the u.s sanctions and waivers are set to expire in may 2019 so they're expired prior to this date coming about trump decided to label the islamic revolutionary guard as foreign terrorists now, the Iranian military is basically comprised of two main groups, the paramilitary force, IRGC, and their conventional force. This is an incredibly controversial move by Trump because it's uncharted territory. Now, we don't know what the second and third order effects are for naming a state actor a foreign terrorist organization, but this can easily lead to escalation with Iran. Following this, obviously, uh, the Iranians began to test the limits of the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA, as he announced that Iran would develop its nuclear program again. Prior to this, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, confirmed Iran has been implementing the nuclear provisions required of the JCPOA, but now Iran is vocal about pursuing its nuclear program. So uh, Trump, instead of, by by making this move, they, they allegedly were not, pursuing their nuclear program and now they're defiantly doing it and so he provoked them and they got and he got a response that he was not aiming for now ruthani on may 8th said said that it would begin their capabilities trump retaliates to this news by furthering his efforts to curb iranian oil sales this background sets the stage for damaged oil tankers and the perceived threats against the u.s forces in iraq and that happened on may 12th four tankers explode and uh they were damaged via explosive charges near the port of Fujaria. According to a U.S. assessment of the incident, Iran, or one of its proxies, allegedly was behind the attack. A Norwegian insurance company agrees. Uh, they were high-grade explosives, and they were delivered underwater via drones. So obviously that's some technology right there. And the materials are used to those, uh, similar to those used by the Houthis in Yemen. Now... The Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini denied the claim that they were behind the attack and said that Tehran does not want a war. Supreme Leader's main claim was that it doesn't make sense for a war to happen with the United States because it would not be in either other, either side's best interest. Um, 
and said it must have just been sabotage. Now, asymmetric warfare methods always leave room for plausible deniability, so it's unclear if the claims on either side can ever be discovered on uh, of the smoking gun. Now, asymmetric warfare is, let's say I'm mad at Harry, and I'm, I'm in a fight with Harry. Mm-hmm. But I don't want Harry to know that I'm the one behind whatever bad thing's about to happen to him, so I hire a hitman. Mm-hmm. And the hitman comes and he either kills Harry or robs him or does whatever bad thing or causes him harm. Mm-hmm. That's the concept of asymmetrical. Your your allies are doing the dirty work for you. So then when they the cops show up in your door, you're like, no. Me, no. Me, no. no. That was James Knees. Yep. It didn't pay with checks, so you'll never catch me. <laughs> <laughs> and I know Nice won't talk because he's not a narc. Um. So, Iran has previously threatened to block the passage of oil through the Strait of Hormuz. The destruction of these tankers may be Iran's way of sending a message to the U.S. and its allies that the freedom to navigate the waters in the Strait and nearby waters is under their control. One-fifth of the the oil in the world passes through this Strait. It's there by the Persian Gulf. Uh, I think it's between basically it's like, you know, Saudi Arabia and I think it's UAE, Bahrain. They all they kind of has that little horn Mm -hmm. and then there's a little horn that comes down and that's the Iranian side and it kind of almost touches. That's the Strait of Hormuz. And if that were to get blocked, um, oil prices in the world would essentially double. So whatever you're paying for gas today, double it. Correct. At least. Correct. And there's a lot of different superpowers that are hedging their bet around this whole issue with that thing anyways this is why china's trying to make another road to go around them right go around this you know basically like screwing them all over right which is hilarious to watch them happen but it's eventually going to their it's china they're used to building big goofy things and make it go after right it's gonna probably fall apart but it's gonna get built so also around this time u.s intelligence riff report that they received some humminant now here's the thing about military people uh they love acronyms and so if you ever have a friend in the military and you go you like have a conversation your shit rep yeah i was just down at the sop working on my rad's and then i had uh 423 s happen and then i had to go down by 1400 to the humit and then then i went to centcom for the afternoon like what I you have to look at them and go English motherfucker. Do you speak it? Do you speak it? <laughs> right. Do you speak it? But humnet humment, uh, human intelligence that Iran was basically uh, trying was threatening to kill and kidnap U.S. soldiers. Um, the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Texas Republican Rep. Michael McCall, told USA Today that. The human intelligence information is what prompted Trump to deploy an aircraft carry along with B-52 bombers and other military forces to the Middle East. Um, U.S. intelligence officials also allegedly learned that the head of the QUD's force, uh, a subunit under the Iranian military, met with Iran's proxy forces to discuss an escalation of forces against the armed forces of America. The same call to target Americans was also allegedly shared with Hezbollah, an Iranian-supported terrorist group in the ITN, the Iranian Threat Network. Um, there, um, there are reports that the state the intelligence may have been misinterpreted and that a domino effect of countermeasures and responses 
are escalating over misinterpretations of this data. Just as we said, things move quickly, mm-hmm. and if things can be misinterpreted, and then all of a sudden, uh-oh. Yeah. So, they shoot. Right. Now, it is possible that John Bolton and those of his ilk in the Trump administration could be attempting to corner Iran and doing something impulsive and foolish. Now, a wrong move on the part of the Iranians could be the justification needed to go to war with Iran. It appears that pieces are being moved on the board to set up a situation where both countries are forced to contend with each other through direct military confrontation. A situation akin to the Gulf of Tonkin may be brewing here. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Gulf of Tonkin was, it's it was uh, was it it was in Vietnam, I believe, and there was a report that the Vietnamese sunk an American ship. Uh, I, I'm going to look this up because I'm not great on Vietnamese, the Vietnam War history, but uh, so I want to make sure that I get this right. Um, but Gulf of Tonkin, <clears throat> the Gulf of Tonkin. So, going to our friend, the Book of Knowledge, Wikipedia. Uh, the USS Maddox incident, 1964, August 2nd, uh, was an inter- international confrontation that led to the United States engaging more directly with Vietnam. It involved either one or two separate confrontations involving North Vietnam and the U.S. in the waters of the Gulf of Tonkin. Mm-hmm. The original report blamed North Vietnam for both incidents, but eventually became very controversial with widespread belief that at, one, at least one and possibly both incidents were false or possibly deliberately so. On August 2nd, 1964, the U.S. destroyer USS Maddox, while performing a signals intelligence patrol as part of DES DeSoto operations, and another acronym, was pursued by three North Vietnamese Navy torpedo boats. Uh, Maddox fired three warning shots, and the North Vietnamese then attacked them with torpedoes and machine gun. Now, uh, Maddox expended over 280 shells in a sea battle one u.s aircraft was damaged three north vietnamese torpedo boats were damaged and north vietnamese sailors were killed six more wounded there were no u.s casualties the maddox was unscathed except for a single bullet hole from a vietnamese machine gun round um there was a second now the gulf of tonkin resolution came out and uh, that granted lyndon johnson the authority to assist the southeast asian country uh, jeopardized by communist aggression. Um, now, let's see. 416 to zero. Yeah. Uh, President Johnson commented privately. Let's see here. Um, let's see. Various news sources, including Time, Life, Newsweek, ran articles throughout August on the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Uh, no doubt uh, there there should be a response to this. It was the pretext for the escalation of U.S. involvement. Um, there, the North Vietnamese said that the patrol was sent there to provoke and to draw fire. Uh, and, yeah, in his book, Body of Secrets, James Banford, who spent three years in the United States Navy as an intelligence analyst, writes that the primary purpose of the Maddox was to act as a seagoing provocateur, to poke its sharp gray bow, and the American flag is close to the belly of the North Vietnamese as possible, in effect shoving its five-inch cannons up the nose of the Communist Navy. The Maddox mission was made even more provocative by being timed to coincide with commando raids, creating impression that the Maddox was directing those missions. Uh, so it had every reason to believe that they were a hostile actor. Uh, actor. 
now Johnson commented privately for all I know the Navy was out there shooting whales um, a former naval officer said uh, uh I maintain that President Johnson, Secretary McNamara, and Joint Chiefs of Staff gave false information to Congress in their report about the destroyers being attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, White continued his whistleblowing activities in the 68 documentary in the year of the pig. Uh, and it goes on and on. And eventually you find out that the Gulf of Tonkin was just a complete fabrication, never happened, uh, is... <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, right. Crazy. The USS Maddox, Project Ajax, which is the coup in Iran. We're hitting all the, uh, the buttons. <laughs> all the buttons today. All the buttons, and which is also like crazy. Like with all this, is like which I forgot, totally forgot until I read his. You know, read his when you're reading these things that just like George Bush, Lyndon Johnson was the peace candidate. Right. I totally forgot about that. Yep, he absolutely was. Uh, now, throughout the tough rhetoric coming out of Washington, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, many of our allies are calling for de-escalation. Russia has also expressed a desire to see the situation become diffused and has publicly stated it will work with China and Europe to identify a way ahead. Talk of deploying 100-plus thousand troops to the Middle East to counter Iran seems to be tough rhetoric at this point. But if we are not careful, we could find ourselves in another conflict that spans another decade of war. Now, given that John Bolton has the ear of the president, it may be a cause for concern as he could be stating a case for preemptive strikes against Iran for perceived possible threat. Now, this doesn't make too much sense since the U.S. has shifted towards focusing their military preparations towards near-peer threats like Russia and China. In regards to negotiation talks, the Iranian president, Hassan Ruthani, is against negotiations at this time. He refers to it as poison. However, his former minister, Zarif... Uh, his government official foreign minister, Mohammed Javad Zarif, stated that negotiations could occur if the U.S. would consider rejoining the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Now, from their perspective, coming to the negotiating table now, without the U.S. willing to reenter the nuclear deal, would just make Iran, Iran appear weak. Now, here are the key takeaways. The second and third order effects of leaving the JCPOA are being felt right now. So when we talked last year about we don't know what this means for the United States and what could this cause, we're not sure. This is what we're feeling right now. This is the consequences of that earlier episode of the earlier events that we talked about in that episode. A libertarian approach to free trade and a less foreign interventionist mindset could have prevented an event like this from occurring. Now, too, we have established a dangerous precedent by giving the president the authority to deploy troops into combat environments under the supposition that it is against a terrorist group. If an adversary's military organization can be labeled a terrorist organization, there is no longer a need to acquire congressional approval to go to war. Through a game of semantics, Congress has relinquished one of their most important responsibilities. Making it easier for our nation to enter wars, renamed conflicts, is just another example of how our foreign intervention policy is only degrading even more. And third, warfare is not merely the use of military might. The escalation of force against our adversary's economic infrastructure has the potential to lead to military conflict as this has. If we are not careful, we can back a nation into a corner and cause them to do something brash and lead to boots-on-the-ground conflict, similar to Tonkin. And just like the start of the Vietnam War, we may go into thinking our technological advances will win the day, but that is not always true. 
We play a dangerous game when we assume military dominance over our opponents. Now, from a libertarian perspective, we should not be engaging in these conflicts, period. But even from a military perspective, we cannot just assume victory, nor can we assume that we can continue to utilize our military in this manner without repercussions, blowback, and unintended consequences. Now, just a side note, Harry. The Pentagon did a war game style simulation mixing in computer simulations and some live fire operations to see what would happen if a Navy similar to Iran's came up against the U.S. Navy fleet in the area. Despite our superior technologically advanced fleet, the notional opposition force quickly did considerable damage to the fleet through unconventional means that they were more capable of accomplishing in real life. So uh, now to cap this all off, uh, <laughs> first we we have to we have to wrap this up with an with a, a Trump tweet. Oh, naturally. Let's, let's hear from the president directly. Uh, the fake news media is hurting our country with its fraudulent and highly inaccurate coverage of Iran. It is scattershot, poorly sourced, quote made up, and dangerous. At least Iran doesn't know what to think, which at this point may be very well a good thing. So he doesn't sound very hawkish. Uh, Now, I would also add that we have 40 bases surrounding Iran. And so I think if you are um, a a political thinker in Iran, you like we are political thinkers here in America. Imagine the country of Iran having 40 bases in Mexico, Cuba, the Caribbean, uh, Canada, Mexico, Canada, Greenland, Greenland. off the coast of Alaska, Hawaii, 40 bases, 40 military bases. <laughs> so, uh, and just a, just a note, uh, Iran is 80 million people. Iraq was 30. Afghanistan, few million. Uh, three times the size of Iraq. M- much more r- rich, uh, near nuclear power, much better weapons technology, uh, mm-hmm much more uh, a large tr- trained well-seasoned group of fighting men and women in in their network of people mm-hmm. we can't win afghanistan against a bunch of goat herders we didn't win iraq do you think that we're going to win a war with iran or is this just another perpetual money pit for us to generate income for northrop grumman boeing and for anybody else that makes military weaponry. Uh, first off, uh, we uh, don't have a military. We didn't fight anything. Uh, that was them. Uh, and, uh, you're absolutely correct. Granted, this is more style of combat that the United States military is designed to go after is a military unit that's actually going to fight on a military style. They right. usually get bogged down when they have to deal with guerrillas, but Iran's no they're not dumb. They know exactly they probably have studied, they knew exactly how, you know, these goat herders decided to and rice rice paddy uh, farmers shot back at the United States military. Yes. And will do the exact same thing. Yeah. They're not goofy. And they've got the and they have better and since they have better weapons to do this, you know, like guerrilla warfare that they're just going to do that. Right, you know they, you know it's you. They've got big, gigantic, goofy ships that you know. Yes, it's got all this tech, but you know it's 
tech cost problems. We've right. seen it all that happened. It's the reason why a lot of Air Force pilots still like the F fifteens and don't like flying anything else. Right. Like they like the older F eighteen, F eighteen Hornet, and A ten Warthogs. They like these older planes. Right. Just because they freaking do their jobs. Right. So that these things are bogged down with too much tech. Can't do anything. Yeah. You sort know? of like cars. Well, yeah. I don't need to be f- messing with this huge dash. I don't need an iPad on my dash. I just want to drive a car. True. My Subaru, Get out of here. My Subaru is making me very lazy. Uh, it's a manual gearbox. Right. And when I get, you know, if you ever get on a hill on a manual gearbox, you're like, start freaking out because, you know, you've right. got to get it in gear so you don't roll back. Well, these modern, you know, five speeds now, when you let go of the brake, it's still applied, so you can just kind of hold there in suspension with your foot on the clutch, and you can just get in the gear and go off. Mm. It's nice. It's probably is going to make me lazy if I ever get into another, like, oh, I want to get to an older five-speed. I'm just going to roll back right into someone's car now. I hate well, driving aids. I usually I, disable them. <laughs> makes you lazy. You are outraged by the weirdest stuff. Uh, I, but I get it. Um, no, all right. ABS makes you lazy. Turn it off. Final thoughts for this episode, Harry. I think one thing I am going to like to understand what everyone really to get from this thing is that one good thing. Well, not not, it's not the only, but one good thing of the Trump presidency is how hyper aware everyone is with the United States is doing right the military actions that going on in the middle east these secret wars are becoming a thing of the past yeah i think if eddie was talking going down this road the hatred of trump might stir congress to take back their power so they're the ones that had to declare the wars mm-hmm. or even that maybe they may want to but trump may kick it to them just to get their votes on it right just to watch it the it is going to be interesting to watch on that aspect. I will always hope and go for peace. I'm, I'm against the next war. I'm already against the next war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great saying from anti-war to come I'm already against the next war. Uh, so, which it's, you know, because because the United States is very like war torn. I doubt this will happen unless something really pushes in far off. Dude. Right. Even the Rush, even Russia is tired of a lot of the saber rattling. Their military just can't keep up with it and everything. They've pulled out of Venezuela. Uh, I think it was last week, mm-hmm. just because it's like you know, like they're over there and they're just they understand like what they're doing. They're like con- not really picking a fight, but they're you know, but they they don't have the money for this. Right, no money for that. You know, they took what they could get from Venezuela and once they stopped getting paid or when they got all the resources and everything else to get out of it and then left. Right. I agree. I agree with you completely. That is the sound of a tired and defeated man. (laughs) 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 I will just say that having lived through the 2003 Iraq uh, wars, I I can only say that um, it's very easy to get swept up in all the rhetoric. It's very easy to get carried away by all of it. It's very easy mm-hmm. to just go along with the crowd but i think you have to really stop and examine what's happening and what are the consequences and will this work and what and so much of government is when you're evaluating things you need to stop and say what are the outcomes like we, well we should help we should help uh, poor people with this program well what are the outcomes well we can't get rid of CPS because we have to protect children. Are children being protected or are we just doing something that makes everybody feel good and not protecting children? Like what's the outcomes? 
And I think outcome-based judgments, you will often find that anything involving a bureaucracy and a government, it doesn't work well. And the military is one of those things, and uh, diplomacy is one of those things. And so the idea that we're going to get a beneficial outcome by going to war with Iran, I have to ask you, do you really believe that? Like, the whole idea of defending our nation, defending our freedom and all of that, like, are we really having our freedom defended or did did we engage in the Middle East to the point that they attacked us so we built a spy state where you and I are completely in, uh, under surveillance? Mm-hmm. Did, that, did that cause freedom? Because it didn't seem like the post-9-11 era has brought us more freedom. Correct. So. So I would, I'd ask you to really think about the outcomes before you support more war. And uh, I thank Harry for being here. I thank you for listening to the show. And I thank all of our patrons. Um, rough couple of months in the Patreon, Harry. Like, lots of lots of people dropping. And I don't, I don't know if it's me. I hope it's not me. I apologize if it is me. But um, listen, if you support the show, you got to support us financially. That's really important because we have a lot of bills to pay. And uh, we put a lot of time into this, and uh, it's it's if you get something out of this, if you learn something from this show, and you'd miss us if we were gone, then please become a patron. Uh, $5 a month, $10 a month, $25, $100 a month, whatever you can do. There's a dollar a month option where you just get, uh, mm-hmm. you just get kicking a buck. $5 gets you all that bonus, uh, that bonus uh, audio. So please, there was 12 extra minutes on this show. Mm-hmm. That that people got to listen to. So, Harry, great episode. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I know. Right. I I feel like I never see you anymore. I'll see you in two weeks or three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, end of June. I guess it's goodbye for now. <laughs> I'll see you soon. See All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>